0: Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how can we face up to challenges in our own lives to keep making the most of our time despite the difficulties that we face? Each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives and perhaps what each of us can take away from their journey. My guest this episode is Gemma Leah moses Gemma is an exceptional individual. She studied sports science at Loughborough University and then started her dream job at Nike. However, at the age of 24, her plans got derailed when she was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. She went through chemotherapy and during this time, she did the Great North Run and then went back after her treatment to her job at Nike, but then quit this dream job to start the charity Move. And this is a charity that helps and encourages adults to get more active living with and beyond cancer. Gemma, you've already done so much in your first 32 years. I'm really excited to be discussing today with a bit more detail on just how you went through this journey and um, how you dealt with some of these incredible obstacles. Gemma, it's so amazing to have you here today. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having me on, on your new podcast. I'm
1: very excited to be one of your guests. Oh, I, I'm super excited to have you. So, you know, this, this podcast is all about, I guess, facing up to challenges. And can you just take us back a little bit? before you got diagnosed with cancer can you just kind of tell us who you were like what your ambitions were like you know what your life was about can you set us the scene a bit
2: yeah so i'll, I'll give you a little bit of background and i guess my life was always about was had sport always played a big part in my life and I think I didn't realise how important that was until I was diagnosed with cancer. So um, I went, I lived in, Lough- well, I lived in um, a village called Mount Sorrel. So I didn't go very far it was in Leicestershire. So it's about 10 minutes away from Loughborough University. So I didn't move very far mm-hmm. <laughs> from mm-hmm. my home. But I always knew Loughborough as a sporting university. And I was, I played, so I played county hockey at school as well as running. Um, and I also played mixed national league hockey and, and knew that sport, some was big, going to be a big part of my life, but I also wanted to study sport, so I love biology and I love sports, so I wanted to bring the two together and that's where um, I had um, I had the idea of doing a sport science degree and I'm obviously quite naturally, I'm very competitive, so the only place that I wanted to go was the one that needed the highest grades and the best university to get into for sport and exercise science, which was Leftborough. So I'd gone to look okay. at some of the universities and I um, I put Lefborough as both my top two choices. So I'd have been screwed if I didn't get three A's. <laughs> um,
3: okay.
2: but, but I knew that, yeah, I knew that sport was a big part of my life. And, and I went to university and I did a lot of running. Um, I also found university life, which was fun <laughs> outside of running. So I wouldn't say I was a dedicated athlete at that time. Yeah,
1: Loughborough is like a campus university. I'm guessing that's kind of quite a party culture, like pretty, pretty chill, pretty relaxed.
2: Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think people don't realise that until they get there. Yeah, it's got an incredible student union and the sports people party probably harder than anybody else does, which you think being dedicated to your sport. but. You know, at university I, I, I made some incredible friends through running. So running gave me more than just running. It gave me the ability to travel around the world. So I, I went on a training trip every year and one of the best ones that I went to was Flagstaff America for an altitude camp with my group, my Lufthansa. Wow. University. Yes, I spent three weeks. With, <laughs> yeah, three weeks with 15 girls and one coach. <laughs> so that, that was an experience and it was incredible. Um, so we, you know, we got to do things like that, and and it really taught me that it wasn't just about times and competition. It, there was much more to running um, than just that. And and during my university career, I went to, I actually applied. So again, another competitive side of me. Uh, my course offered for two people out of our whole course um, intake to go to university in Australia to study for a semester. So. I applied for that and I remember being really proud of the statement letter that I wrote about my dreams and aspirations and why mm. I wanted to go and do something mm. different. So I actually yeah. went and spent my second degree, my second semester of my second year in Australia at the University of Sydney, um,
3: wow.
2: which was absolutely incredible. And I travelled during that time, I learned so much, I met some incredible people. Mm. Um, so again that was a huge part of my journey and then i came back
1: can i ask what did you write in that letter like what were your dreams and aspirations at that point can you bring take us back to what 21 year old Gemma was thinking or 20 rocks you know Gemma's.
2: yeah i'd like to say that was only a few years ago but gosh i'm going on 12 years
1: now <laughs> I
2: actually a photo popped up today of me and my sister scuba diving on the great barrier reef on my facebook memories and that was 12 years ago so that was when I was in Australia because she came out to visit me um but but I think in that letter I just wrote I, I definitely wrote about the power sport had had on my life and the difference okay. it made the opportunities it provided me but by being involved in it and going abroad to study what that could open my life what opportunities that could open up in my life and the impact that it could have on me as a person and, and my future and my career. So, so I think it was. I, I definitely and I remember this was also in my in my statement I wrote to try and get into Loughborough University. The power of sport always came back into everything I wrote about, and I think that that's that to me is still. I mean, I didn't really realise the true power of it until I until I had cancer. But to me, that's just played a huge and important part of my mm. life. And I came, to so the experience in Australia, again, it was like one experience after the next after the next led on to, you know, making my university career pretty incredible and very enjoyable and, um, and very diverse. So I actually came back and in my third year, I managed to get a brand ambassador position at the University of Nike. So Nike um, Marketing did this whole campaign about getting university students into their Nike training club. And right. I so Paula Ratcliffe did this big um event at Loughborough and I went along and I was one of six girls out of probably a good three four hundred that got selected to
1: be okay wow yeah right Um, and so so how did that sort of shape what you wanted to do next then
2: so once you start if you do an ambassador role for Nike you pretty much then want to work for them (laughs) I was like this is the place I want to work because I got to go to the London offices. I got to see the marketing team. I got to understand what real work in that industry was about. Um,
3: what and was again, it about?
2: Well, again, Nike. You know, some people love them, some people hate them. But for me, I, I don't have a bad word to say about them as a company because I, you know, I went through my treatment and I was diagnosed cancer while I was working for them, and they were absolutely incredible. But again, there is there are sports brands that are better They're just the best. Like they push boundaries, but they are, in terms of their marketing, their inspiration, they're getting people to move, the way they think about, you know, I love an inspirational quote, and Nike are like, heads up there for inspiring you.
1: <laughs> I, I have to say that my all-time favourite YouTube video is Rise and Shine, and I think Nike made that. And, like, when, when I ever, whenever I listen to, like, the first, like, three seconds of that music, I kind of just get, like, the, the shivers down my back, and I'm like, Yes. And I can't not watch that video and like want to do something pretty badass afterwards by yes. making a cup of coffee.
2: Yeah. And I'm like, I would say to myself, I think I live in a bit of a fairy tale land because every time I hear a motivational quote, I'm like, right, I'm going to go do this. <laughs> it's like, they give me a spark in my brain and you know, working for Nike. Yes, it wasn't all glamorous. There was a lot of hard work and I, and I worked in London and didn't really enjoy London life. Uh, but as a brand, to me, they they said the right messages. They were inspiring. They challenged you um, in a way that I'd never been challenged before, in terms of as a 21 year old starting work there. So, um, so
3: yeah.
1: So, what did you think of corporate life? Because you're not still in it, so, um, but it was obviously in a lot of ways very positive. So, what 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 was corporate life like for you?
2: Yeah, interesting. So i in my first so there's parts of it i absolutely loved and i didn't like when i moved to london so before i was before i moved to london so for about four years i was field based and it was incredible because i could manage my own diary i've always been quite really hard working but independent as well and because i went to nike so young so i was 21 i hadn't worked anywhere else so i hadn't worked in an office before so I enjoyed working from home and I was very productive. And also I got, the amazing thing with Nike was I got to go on sales conferences in, well, I went to Portland, Oregon first as a, on a rookie camp. So I was able to go and, so pre Steve Prefontaine, who you'll know. So I got taken around, the, the told about pre story by Jeff Hollister, who was a second employee by Nike, but was also sat at the house with Pre, um, having a beer, the night that he died, basically. So the, the stories that I was told, again, storytelling came from people who were there at the very beginning of Nike. Wow. So there through pre-story. Yeah. Which mind-blowing. Nike, was,
1: Nike folklore, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And, like, that was in my first six months of working. I was in Oregon. Like, I was at, at going to Eugene. I was being mm-hmm. taken around the Nike campus. Like, at 21 years old, that's pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> um, so you can see why, like, my... I was very career driven at that point and
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the benefits that like I got to go on sales conferences in Orlando, um, I got to go, where else did I go? I went to um, the Netherlands and Amsterdam and went to the headquarters there. So, and I can't remember, but there was three other conferences that I went to, which were just insane really. Um, but the mm. I, so when I moved down to London was after I had cancer and I think after I had cancer, I realized that the corporate world just wasn't for me. So I think once you've had cancer your my perspective massively changed. And that's when I could see through not that Nike was bullshit but I could see that people were trying to live life that they weren't necessarily happy with. They mm-hmm. were they were on a hamster wheel going mm-hmm. uh, going to going on the train to l- central London going to the office coming home again and that was life day in day out and I just very quickly
1: was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost, um, intrigued. I'm really intrigued that you after going through your cancer treatment that you went back to Nike in a corporate job, because from my perspective, I just couldn't imagine sort of wanting to spend my time in that way. So take us through, maybe we need to go back a few steps as well. Like, um, and maybe fast forward to come through to that point um okay but but, um first of all like why why did you just go back to Nike
3: so so yeah
2: so what happened was I finished my treatment in November 2012 so my treatment wasn't as long uh, very aggressive but wasn't as long and then
1: how actually let's let's go right back um <laughs> can you and then we'll, we'll fast forward to nike so can you can you tell us a bit about i mean how many how this was what like 12 you were 24 at the time i'm trying yeah. to do my maths in my head and i don't want to get it wrong how what, what year are we talking about can you're working for nike yeah and
3: yeah
2: so it <laughs> something
1: was went l- wrong at some point yeah it was
2: 2012 so i the first what happened first was I was working. I was going in and out of London from Leithbray in March 2012. So the first step to this whole thing was that I fell off the train between the gap and the train station. So wherever you see mine, the gap, I went straight down that gap. So this is the first incident that happened in 2012. Yeah. Um, so How, about- how
1: did do you? Do, is is that there, there's enough space? Like I've always thought it would be a tight squeeze, but you managed it.
2: If you've ever been to Loughborough train station, the gap is huge. And I don't know how more people don't just fall off this this gap. And we were talking earlier about being on your phone. And yes, I was on my phone carrying my luggage (laughs) and doing too many things while trying to get off a train. And I do not know how it happened, but I just went straight down, um, straight down the gap. And my ankle just smacked against the platform on my way down. Oh. Yeah. And... And me, like, so I was actually like legs hanging down platform um, underneath the train and my arms on the platform, basically. And yeah, <laughs> oh so you either laugh or cry at this moment. So I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> somebody help me up. So somebody helped me up. The train got obviously stopped. But that was the first incident of the kind of, all of the things that happened in 2012. So that was in the March. And I ended up having a operation having a pin my ankle was quite badly broken in an area that if I didn't have the right rehab I would have probably never run again so for me that was the most devastating thing because as a runner and I was a runner that was I'd moved to a new coach and I was improving very quickly so I was coming into my best years I'd ever had running wise so on crutches 10 weeks after an operation not knowing I was going to be able to run again was
1: absolutely
2: yeah
1: (laughs) you've already told us just how important running was and so yeah for you not to be able to run, and I can relate to that those times when I've been injured like as a triathlete I'm so glad I've got another sport to kind of run to metaphorically sometimes um you know just to keep me sane so I can imagine it felt incredibly
2: yeah and I think and people even now even I've had cancer and running injuries are really tough like I don't think we should ever undervalue that when you get when it gets taken away, I mean, you'll not be able to do something you love. Even if it's not, you know, really serious or life threatening, it still is very, very difficult. Like I spent ten weeks at home on crutches. I was in my dream career. I was running really well, and then suddenly that was all taken away from me, and that was really, really difficult. Also, the fact that I couldn't move anywhere because I'd had this operation. And yeah. And I think that also the fact that I didn't know whether I would ever be able to run again. Um, but luckily I had a very, very good physio who was part of British Athletics at the time, um, Renee Thompson, and she she treated me privately. And she had me in the pool like four hours a day doing walking up and down the pool and aqua jogging. Four oh,
1: and- hours?
2: Yeah. I remember walking up to the pool, um, crouching up to the pool, and then um, going, being in there a very long time, doing drills, doing strength exercises, doing everything in that. And luckily, Loughborough, like this is the amazing facilities at Loughborough. They are incredible. So for rehab and things like that, you 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 know you're not going to just a public swimming pool when you've got kids flying around everywhere. Like it's really, the facilities are made for sports people, so it's, it's pretty amazing. But I, so I found that so that period of time I you know again I had something to focus on but it was still very difficult. But when I was during my build up and my rehab, I was aqua jogging with a friend to keep my you know keep my cardiovascular fitness up and try and build that again. And I noticed a lump in my neck, and yeah. it was quite a hard lump. And and she said, well maybe you're just a bit run down. And then two weeks later, the lump was still there, and it was still quite small at the time. So I went to the GP and. The GP um, looked at it and said, well, I'll do a blood test, so we'll check that out. But in the meantime, I'm going to refer you to the ear, nose and throat specialist to get to get this lump checked out. She said, don't worry about it and don't Google it, but um, it could be something called lymphoma. But didn't say cancer, just said lymphoma. So I went home and I Googled it. <laughs> and I, <laughs> what
1: did you, you do. do? Yeah, yeah. don't Goog- Google it. Of course I'm going to Google it.
2: But since I've had cancer, actually and gone through treatment, I definitely don't Google, I didn't Google anything when I was going through my treatment because I was like, I may as well jump off a cliff if I Google everything. <laughs> it's, I right. think you change your perspective. I changed my perspective once I started going through my treatment. But at that point, you know, I didn't know anything about what that
1: was. Mm. I feel it's a bit like, you know, this is a bit of an obscure reference, but you know, Lord of the Rings and like the ring. And like, you either kind of want to be like Frodo who knows nothing or like Gandalf who knows everything (laughs) and the people most susceptible to the ring are people who know like a little bit like Boromir and I think it's the same this is like a really weird like analogy but like when you know a little bit about what you're going through it's like scares the shit out of you basically but it's sometimes Uh. like ignorance is bliss or you kind of need to be like knowing everything to kind of really know what the situation is like
2: yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And you never—I don't think you can ever get to either, can you? That's the horrible thing. So <laughs> no, that is
3: yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> so Sorry. yeah, so i was just gonna say um, that. So that lump um, then got—I got seen at an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and unfortunately, they diagnosed it as a cyst. So I was misdiagnosed quite badly yeah. actually, because the lump in my neck got bigger uh. and bigger, and that's the, one of the reasons why my cancer developed very quickly because of the type of cancer it was and it doesn't take long to spread at all. So once it spread, like I was only one, by the time I was properly diagnosed, the only place it hadn't gone was to my spine, spinal cord and my brain. So it could have been, the situation could have been a lot better had it been diagnosed at that point in time. Yeah. But, but what happened was that it was diagnosed as I, I was working at Nike at the time, and the London Olympics were in the summer. And as a as a job in marketing, it's probably one of the biggest events or showcases that you could ever work at. And yeah. yes, Nike weren't the headline sponsor, but there was so many so much activation and, and stuff mm. going on around London that I would have been part of. So I actually asked for this operation to remove the cyst to be moved until September. And on the NHS, that would have been fine but yeah. luckily and I, I think the NHS is absolutely incredible mm. um, and a lot of things but in terms of that misdiagnosis but also the operation having to be having to wait so long for an operation because I couldn't have it the next week and they were like you can't have it for three months because of waiting lists uh, So if, I, if I'd have waited I wouldn't have been here so I had private health cover with Nike and yeah I was in Amsterdam for work, and I had this lump on my neck, and I was like, I just can't go on another day, because I had headaches, I was tired, it was just aching, and it was really big, like, I, you know, I've got photos, and it's sticking out my neck, like, it...
1: You know, how, how, can you, like, a golf ball, a tennis ball, or what are you, what are you talking probably about?
2: Probably, like, a is it lacrosse ball, like, like I'm showing you because you can see me, but... um. Probably. It's choosing
1: an obscure ball
2: to... after Probably two hockey balls put together.
1: Two hockey balls?
2: Yeah, two hockey balls put together coming out of my neck. Yeah, it wasn't oh. uh, a very nice thing to, to
1: yeah.
3: have
2: around. And I think... And then I was like, I don't... I, this is, I, I Googled sister, they grow, and they said... And I, in Google it said yes.
1: <laughs> and it, this is, like, really interesting to hear because... Um, even at this point, you know, like someone from the outside could have gone in and said, like, you know, looking back and say, Gemma, like, what were you thinking? Seriously, there was this huge lump and you, you didn't think it was something super serious. But that's exactly what I did as well. I had this huge thing round the back of my left shoulder, huge swelling. And I, it just did not occur to me. I just did not see it as serious. Yeah.
2: And I think a lot of people are the same with that. My issue as well was that I had a diagnosis. So I went to an ear, nose and throat specialist, they ultrasound it, and they told me it was a cyst. So in a way, I had no reason to think otherwise, because they were the experts, and I wasn't fully aware of the other symptoms that I was having, so I had like a bad stomach for about a month, and I blamed it on a dodgy Nando's that I had. I was like, oh, that dodgy Nando's is still in my stomach.
1: Yeah, a very cheeky Nando's.
2: Yeah, and I remember walking around London doing, was, I was going to a ball and I was shopping for a dress. And I remember getting like quite hot and sweaty, like not normally, like, I wouldn't normally feel that way. But I remember just thinking, oh, it's London. And London always exhausted me anyway. Like at that point, I wasn't living there. I was going in and out from Loughborough for work. Mm. And I always felt exhausted through that work anyway. So you don't, you know, you don't look at those signs and symptoms. And I think I know a lot about cancer now, but back then, I was 24, I didn't have anybody in the family who had it. I wasn't aware of anything. So, like, I didn't follow anybody, you know, now there's lots. you know, you can see teenage cancer trust putting about go to your GP, the signs and symptoms. But uh, back in the day, I didn't follow those type of accounts or people.
3: So Uh, my wife.
2: Yeah, my world wasn't surrounded by cancer, and and I didn't know any other young person who had it. So why would I? Why would I think I had it?
1: Yeah, I think there's a really um, important point here about the dangers of not so much the misdiagnosis, that that is obviously huge, but it's the fact that I thought it was a wing scapula. I was told by a physio it was a wing scapula, and I was like, great, I know what it is. I think the the, the danger is that we um, are then we just accept what we've been told rather than being a bit more sceptical, you know, yeah. and being a bit quicker on like, oh, is it really that? I feel that's the biggest danger that we can be lulled into this false sense of security because we've got it named as something.
2: Yeah. I, and I agree with you. I think looking back I should have pushed a lot more because it was obvious how I was feeling, assisted cyst- wouldn't make you feel well it can do but you know it, it probably wouldn't have made me feel like that and unfortunately by this time I actually so I I went in to have this cyst removed so it's still on July the 3rd so I got diagnosed with a cyst in end of March I think July the 3rd is when I went to have it removed and so that's quite a long time for it because lymphoma spreads very quickly so by the yeah. time i would had they tried to remove the cyst and they couldn't remove it and they came back afterwards not being able to remove it and three days later the biopsy showed that I had cancer it also spread to my abdomen and bowel and I had 13 centimeter tumors so from probably from what it was maybe just before the March
1: centimeters. To, wow.
2: yeah, to July the spread was just so quick and you know if I hadn't had that operation on July the 3rd then I wouldn't I don't think I'd have been here two weeks three weeks later because they said you've probably had a month left to be able to without that spread because it's just so aggressive
1: wow a month yeah I think it's 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 really it's truly very very scary how quickly these things can develop Like in the space of three weeks for me I had just a golf no a tennis ball grow beneath my armpit essentially like before I started my chemo yeah it's it's
2: it's mind-blowing isn't it and I think you know like you said you do we do really need to ha- be aware of those signs and symptoms and I think you know mine was seven years ago now and I hope a lot has changed but I still worry that it's because I'm in the space a lot around Twitter and that I see it all the time about looking and checking mm-hmm. but i'm I'm still worried that people don't see it enough and you know it it can happen you know it's happened to me and you like it can happen to anybody like we were both fit and healthy and doing sport it it does yeah. Yeah, especially in young, you know, young people, it doesn't necessarily. It can just come on with no, you know, no
1: lifestyle, that's nothing. It's just yeah. there. It? And so take take me back to the, the the moment where, um, you know, you've you've done really well, you know, uh, throughout your time at school, and then Loughborough and you're in this great job with Nike. Uh, the Olympics are coming up, um, and then they tell you that it's not assist how did that feel
2: so so yeah I was in the I was in the consultant room with my mum and dad and I I knew something wasn't right like it was pretty obvious because the lump hadn't been removed after the operation so yeah and they called me in three days later so I knew things were going to have to move pretty quickly but I didn't expect cancer and again when they told me I still didn't know enough about it to realize I pretty much knew it was very serious but I the first thing so they told me and I cried and initially because that that is also my natural reaction I might be a strong person but I also cry But <laughs> the waterworks would just turned on
1: but that's not that's, a contradiction
2: yeah and I just remember looking I think I felt so bad for my parents and I just remember looking at the consultant and said I literally said am I going to die and his answer was we can't you know we can't answer that question but you're going to be seeing a very good Um, consultant who he knew personally who's in Leicester who's extremely good and um, is an expert in this area in your type of cancer so that's the first step and they said they did say the prognosis hopefully is good and it depends on how you go through the treatment but they said the treatment's going to be extremely aggressive to be able to get on top of this and I started treatment two days later so that was or three days later I think so that was the reality that I don't like say so for example fertility wise like people have people like my age would have their eggs frozen because they don't know what cancer effect to have and the ability to be able to have children if I survived in years to come that wasn't even an option it was three days later you're going straight in to be able to save your life mm. and I remember the first my first appointment with my consultant who's now actually trustee on a charity and she's you know she's a incredible woman and um, that having her to support me during treatment, like she was basically all business, no bullshit. <laughs> this is what goes on. And I needed that. Like right. I need somebody who was, and I think this comes from running that was like, this is the process.
1: Mm-hmm. This,
2: is what you, this is what we're going to do. And you just need to follow that. Um, yeah. So that, that for me.
1: See that. It's like a training set, isn't
2: it? Yeah. Like a training session. Someone puts it down I follow the plan and off we go. <laughs> uh.
1: That's really interesting because I was speaking with Lucy Gossage a few days ago and she was saying the difficulties in knowing like how prescriptive to be you know like sometimes you know the patient or when she was a patient she just wanted to be told this is exactly what to do whereas other patients want more of a say so but it sounds like it worked for you.
2: Yeah and I think that's the case again of everybody's very different but I I think what I, why I worked so well with my consultant and why it helped me, why it helped my mindset was because I needed, I didn't want anyone who was fluffy around the edges who, you know, molly me or kind of got emotional with me. I needed somebody who was straight to the point, who told me the reality and who told me what I needed to focus on and what, what was going to happen. And yeah. it was like, it was like the first day and we they were telling me, you know, you have to have a bone marrow biopsy um, when you're awake. So, for those of you people who don't know it, and a lot of people with leukemia have it a lot more often, but, you know, they're taking bone from your hip joint or your hip, um, clamping things down, removing bone while you're awake to do the biopsy.
1: Why do you have to be awake?
2: Um, because I wasn't under the age of 18 so, at the time. So they uh, so it, it's obviously it's very, painful. very painful, but they think you can manage it. And, oh, my God, that was the first thing I experienced like after I've been diagnosed and then when I first went in hospital, they had to do that to see how far it had gone into my, if it gone into my, um, to my spinal cord and my bones. So pulling that hip bone out and giving me some gas and air and, and then just patching me up and then saying off you go after it. I was like, that is the most painful thing I've ever been through. I was like, why can't I be put to sleep? But I, I think a lot, and a lot of people who go through cancer, depending on what your cancer is, do have it. And I thought I'd had a strong pain threshold, and I was like, "My God, that's horrific!" Um, wow. And then, and then they had to then do a lumbar puncture. So, if anyone's had a lumbar puncture before, is where they, you know, take spi- take fluid out of your spinal cord with a massive needle, and then insert chemotherapy when it becomes the lumbar puncture. And again, that is the most horrific. I mean, the thought of it's more horrific than probably the actual um, actual right. pain one. But again, yeah. you have treatment
1: and you're going through stuff like that it's, it's horrendous <laughs> I mean the, the the nuts and bolts of that sound pretty nasty um did you I mean I just remember when I was diagnosed like I like everything seemed to kind of fall apart and kind of crumble for me all my expectations you know um you know and I I the, the, the prognosis for me was they didn't say you know you've got a good chance or anything like that. So that was really tough. But you sounded quite. I don't know if you sound, you you were unfazed. Yes, but it sounded like you were kind of quite business-like, And like two days later, three days later, you got going. But like, was there a whole kind of like you had to reassess your life sort of point, or was there not enough time for that? Or yeah,
2: I think and like you said, I think by them saying the prognosis hopefully would be okay like they can never tell you because they don't know but Mm. I wasn't told that I had terminal cancer so again that gives you a bit of a you know for me that gave me something to hold on to I guess I was still extremely upset I remember going home and Lewis my boyfriend at the time he's now my husband I remember just bursting into tears and being you know just being all over the place but the first thing I actually did now I never wrote vlogs or anything but I went upstairs I went into my bedroom on my own and I wrote a note a letter to myself basically and I um yeah I'm just checking I'm still am I still on here yeah you can still hear me (laughs) yeah Um, yeah yeah so I wrote a letter to myself and I released it as a blog later on but it basically I just said like there's too much of me to give to the world I'm not ready to go yet and i guess it was the affirmation looking back now it was probably me talking to myself in that way was the affirmation that i needed to get on with what i needed to do and i i think at that moment i'd learned a lot from sport so i learned i mean it's not the same but i've learned the skills of you know in running it's a sport with very little reward so i always talk about it like i put my whole life into running and i you know, I trained 70, 80 miles a week and everything went towards it. And I got very, very little back. Like I didn't ever get paid for it. And I don't get paid for it. You may get, you know, you may get good results and times, but you get very little back from it. And I think that kind of taught me that, yes, you get knocked down again and again, and again. But I, I took it as this is another challenge that I had to focus on that process instead of the outcome. It was the only way that mentally that I could get through this. And I And I really believe that I did that. And my husband and my family are very similar in mindsets. I think that really helped, especially my husband, who I spent most of my time with. He has that exact mindset. And that really, really helped me because I was only surrounded by people who had that same mindset.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's a wider point here, isn't there, about the... The environment that you create for yourself by the people you choose to spend your time with. And this, I think is very relevant to going through cancer, but it's,
3: yeah.
1: um, we were talking about it earlier actually as well, sort of, you know, surrounding yourself by people who are passionate, who have that kind of spark. Like it makes, makes a world of difference. And you don't, it's like, um, it's like the sun coming out from behind a cloud. You don't even realize that, you know, you weren't feeling the sun's rays. Yeah.
2: And it's, it is extremely important because, and sometimes, you know, you gravitate towards those people or it takes time in your life to realise who's important to you and who's just dragging you down. And it doesn't mean you have to get rid of people because it may be, you know, it might be family members, but it also means that you can be selective who you spend your time with. But I think I was very lucky that... You know, my parents and my sister had very similar mindsets, which which I think we developed growing up. Like, And I really believe that sport gave me that mindset and that grounding. But I think what one thing I learned when I first started treatment, and this is a very selfish way to be, but I'm OK with that because it really helped me. But I had a, a big, big tunnel vision. And I call it a tunnel vision because I didn't, I tried to not care about anything else at that period of time other than what I needed to do to go get through this treatment. And I cared about people, you know, I did, I did care about people, I kept my relationships, but like, for example, when I was in, when I was in hospital, and I was, at the time, Leicester didn't have a teenage and young adult cancer ward. So I was treated in an adult ward. So you were surrounded by people at a very, you know, different age range, people in their 90s, which, you know, still deserved to have exactly the same care and attention. But for a young person at 24, that was not the environment that I wanted to be in.
1: No, I, I was lucky when I went through my treatment to be in the teenage um, and and young adult ward, you know, which Teenage Cancer Trust, um, you know, built raise the money for. And I didn't realize, you know, I had my own room and stuff and I had, you know, my mom or my dad sleep on the couch. And I didn't realize just how amazing that was until I spent one afternoon in the, in the adult ward. And it's really, I mean, I'll be very honest that it felt really demotivating and crushing yeah. actually like it was not an inspiring environment to be in and you know everyone has to go through it just as they are of course but like when you're 24 it doesn't make you excited for for life
2: no and i and i agree and now having seen the teenager in cancer ward, like you're still going through treatment and cancer on those wards that's still a reality but like you say it's the environment the environment just isn't about the people it's about like in the adult wars that the hospital like you know the treatment was incredible like what you've got given but the hospital's not in- like those wards aren't inspiring but I think for me going back to the tunnel vision side of things mm. I just remember my consultants really fought for me to have like my own room so there's always one room on a ward that's for the most, most sick and vulnerable. And my cancer, you know, the treatment I was going for, it didn't make me the most sick and vulnerable because I was going for extremely aggressive treatment and I was very prone to infection. So one, I remember one part of my treatment where they couldn't find a room for me because everywhere was full. And I remember sat I sat outside first and then I sat in the day room and there was nobody in the day room. So everybody was on the ward um, in the bath. And I basically refused to go in the ward because I was told that I had no white blood cells. I can't fight infection. And yet I was being put on a ward with other people. And I think the tunnel vision and the kind of stubbornness of me was like, well, you've told me this information. So why the hell am I going to spend time in a ward with people who could pass something on to me? So I remember being sat in the day room and I thought, I'm sleeping in here if I have to, like, that was the, you know, and I look back at and I'm like, that's a bloody stubborn place to be, Gemma. But actually, like, it's also being aware of what you need to do at this point in time to help help you survive. Because I didn't want to get an infection that would kill me. Like, Mm. I wasn't prepared to do that. So I was very lucky then that I remember halfway through the day I turned, I saw these consultants marching down the ward And they were trying to basically, my consultant was trying to find me a bed because they need, they knew that I needed a room and that was the best thing to do for me. So I think, like, like you say, I think looking back, I probably, I had a television approach, which really helped me in my mindset. And, and Mm. that was important to me, but I don't think I developed that. I just think that was who I was.
1: Yeah. Um, And before we, um, I feel that we're beginning to fast forward our way back to Nike, but there's um, what you did partway through your chemo treatments, you know, partly because, right, there wasn't a, a, a teenage and young adult ward where you were. You 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 did the Great North Run half marathon. Um, how?
2: <laughs> yeah, so that came about by my partner Lewis who's now my husband but we so another thing during treatment so I'd gone through a lot of cycles um in hospital and then when I wasn't so I had all my chemotherapy in hospital um through you know the drip and Hickman line but then when I was recovering I was out of hospital so I had an infection in between one cycle and I we bike it was a really nice day so we cycled into the hospital and it was only it was from I think from my mum and dad to so Mount Thoral to the Lesterall Infirmary, which you go through beautiful Watermead Park. But anyway, when you arrive at a hospital with a, I mean, you've probably done it as well, but a cycle helmet on, yep. and you go to get your antibiotics, you get a lot of funny looks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we were we were on that cycle ride, and Lewis, um, there was so there was the hourspace Space appeal going on at the same time, which was to raise the money to build the TYA teenager young adult units. Right. So so that was, that was, so my consultant was involved in raising that money. So Leicester hospitals were doing a massive appeal um, at the time. So we were aware of that. And, you know, when they said about that you, they could have a ward for young people that'd be similar to my age, um, that'd be able to be treated. I was like, oh my gosh, that would be amazing because I wouldn't like to be, if, I wouldn't like anybody else to be treated where I was. So my husband on the cycle ride was just, my nurse was just like, Gemma, wouldn't it be amazing? You've got cancer why didn't you go and run the Great North Run? Because we have friends who work for the Great North Run. Why didn't you go and run it? You make, you would raised so much money for this appeal because you've got cancer and, you know, um, you're in a really tough situation and you can go and do it. And I, I laughed at him and I said, yeah, but you don't know how it feels. Like I'm cycling and I'm out of breath. <laughs> yeah.
1: How did that feel? Like someone saying, oh, you know, kind of presuming to know what you might want to do, like, I think my reaction would have been like, I got off, like, you know, don't try and tell me what to do. I'm, I've got enough on my plate right now. But like, what was, yeah. what, how did it feel to you?
2: Mine and Lewis's relationship is pretty much like that. So as soon as he goes, I think you can, like, Jem, why didn't you do this? I'm like, yeah, why can't I do this? <laughs> so he knows I that can't. that, I think what deep down he knew that that's what I needed because, it was probably the best thing now that anybody's ever suggested to me because I think during my treatment, one, raising money, I was refreshing pretty much every hour. I was while I was in hospital, I was refreshing my just given page. But also, even though I wasn't running much like I was doing bits of exercise, but I was, you know, I could only when I got further on in my treatment, I could only like run and walk for a mile, like I was knackered and it was really hard. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't doing much training, but it still made, it's still in my mind. I was like, I need to go out for that walk or little jog because I've got yeah. this thing up. And so I think Louis suggesting that, I was like, I laughed at it at first. And then I was like, you know what? That's a really good idea. Because it, what it gave me was, what, what at that time when he suggested it, I, what I thought was it's going to give me something to focus on outside of cancer. And people might be like, well, that's ridiculous. You've got enough to think about it and enough going on. And I had, you know, a lot of people from work, people from Nike and, and pe- my friends and people around me said, Jamie, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to do this. But I remember saying, because people started to get a bit worried that I was doing it. You know, I was going through quite aggressive treatment and I still had cancer. But I just said to Lewis, I said, I just know that this is the right thing to do. And I feel like even if I walk around, like you're, he was so right mentally, it was the best thing that I could have ever mm. done.
1: Yeah, I, it's so interesting you said, you know, um, it gives you another focus outside of your, your cancer. I feel that's something that needs to change more in the way that is treated. It needs to be recognised that that's not just like optional for the patients who want to do it. I think that should be fundamental. Like yeah. as far as possible, each person going through treatment, having an outside focus, I think is enormously empowering. Yeah. It gives you a different identity you're not just this this patient um it means that you can like focus on other things it doesn't mean that one negative thing is consuming your life so I can definitely understand that
2: yeah and I think like from your story you you've had the same feeling and that and that thing that you can go and do that's that's not not it's not that so he's not letting the cancer define you so for me it was like Yes, I was going through a journey with with cancer and treatment, but I also had something else to talk about. And for me, that it, every time somebody came to see me or visit, I, it wasn't just about the cancer. Like we'd say, they'd say hi, how are you, and like I'm like oh, no, I'm not feeling very well. But then we'd go straight on to talking about the Great North Run, or then after right. the Great North Run, it'd be like, wow, what what did you do? So I feel like I had these two worlds that were going on at the same time, and and I think like you say, people can get very daunted about. Hearing, you know, we've talked about it before. Hearing me and you say, "I did a half marathon," or "I'm doing a, a cycle ride from Beijing to uh, Bristol to Beijing," which is mind blowing for a lot of people. But I think what what I always say is, you know, for me, the Great North Run was achievable. So mm. I knew that I, you know, if I walked around, I'd still get round. Like that was the reality of it. And and I yeah. think people can also choose things that are achievable to them and that aren't unrealistic. But would still challenge them and give them something to focus on
1: absolutely it's about you know it's having a challenge that um that you want to do that kind of excites you but is definitely achievable and it's, it's sort of your unique challenge rather than doing what is a challenge for someone else
2: yeah and, and we've seen it through so our 5k away and our move initiative and our online mm. programs that like we've seen people doing things that they never thought were possible when they're going through cancer treatment or when they've finished or whether they've got a terminal cancer diagnosis and you know to them they're like oh my challenge isn't anything special or it's not but it is to them it's something that has separated cancer and basically put had, they've had two things going on in their life not just cancer and that's what makes it special because like you say, then you're able to take your mind into two different places and be switched on when you need to be switched on.
1: And I think it also, there's, um, I haven't thought about it too much, but when friends and family meet you, there's something else you can talk about. And it makes it easier for them as well. Not that you should be doing it, I think, ever for other people, but I think that's just another kind of positive side effect that people aren't like, oh, so... (laughs) That was the treatment? Yeah. <laughs> you're enjoying that chemo? Yeah.
3: And
2: no,
1: I, the, like, Gemma, tell us about your training.
3: Yeah,
2: and I agree, like, there was, you know, there's a lot of awkward moments when people come and visit your hospital and like, hi, are you okay? And you're like, no, I'm not okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
3: just want to talk
2: well. about yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. right. like, it. It's quite, there's, you know, cancer does, as much as you don't want it to define you, it becomes part of you, whether you like it or not. And, you know, it's still a part of my life now, but I guess to have something else to focus on means that you, yeah, you have something else to talk about, and you, you know, you're not just a cancer patient, which mm. for me was extremely important, and that's why I say the Great North Run is one of my proudest moments. I like even, you know, my time wasn't—it's still quick to a lot of people. This is why, you know, two hours and I think officially two hours and twenty-three minutes, but um, to me, that's a mar- miles away from who I was as an athlete, but yet it it will always be my proudest moment because I always say, so at that point my body was rock bottom, but my mind was able to take me to a place that nobody else believed was possible. And that just also shows the power of the mind. And some people are further forward with their mindset than others, but that doesn't mean you can't work and develop it to help you in your life.
1: And what difference did it make when you started training for the great North run, like physically or the, the direct impact on your mental mindset as well from the exercise. Did it have an impact or did you just end up feeling more tired or something because of it?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I was going through some pretty tough treatment at the time. So I think, tra- I don't think I really trained for the great North run <laughs> when I did it. Um, I've said to people, like I tried to do some home workouts and I remember, so when I first got out of a six week, um, my first phase of treatment was six weeks in hospital and I was in wow. a bone, yeah, I was in a bone marrow unit, which I didn't have a bone marrow transplant, but they were. It was quite a dangerous um, first cycle of treatment because they were getting all the tumours out of my body through the chemo- aggressive chemotherapy. So once I, you know, once I left the hospital at that point, I asked the consultant, not my consultant, proper consultant, like um, ones that come in and do the ward rounds. I asked them if I could go for a thirty-minute run, and he was absolutely not. Like you won't be running probably a year post chemotherapy because because that's because somebody else who's had the same treatment as you didn't get back to exercise a year post finishing,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I just didn't I in my mind I was like well he's not me or like that person like yeah. that person's fine they can do what they want to do but that is yeah. me again stubbornness yeah. and single mindedness but then I went to ask the nurse and she was. So, if you don't get the right answer from one person, Yeah,
1: of course. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would have gone to the cleaner if I needed to. Um, but I went to ask her, and she just said, Look, put your running kit on, start with the walk, and just see how you feel. So I got out, and again, I think to prove to myself that I could run and that actually I felt okay at this point, I went for a 30 minute run. And it felt amazing because, again, I think I proved to myself that it wasn't just about cancer and that I then felt normal again being able to just go for a run and at that point yeah it wasn't like a run that I used to feel I was tired and it was hard but again I think my mindset just gave me the opportunity to do it and I enjoyed it and I you know I knew that I think I knew pretty quickly that running wouldn't be the same while I was going through treatment so I didn't try and stick to a program or a plan so I just tried to move when I could I walked um, I remember three weeks before the Great North Run I went to try and do a six mile run because I, I thought you know I've got I'm gonna do half marathon here I've got to get a move on with my training and I went out for a six mile run and I got to a mile and stopped and I was like I can't do this I'm too tired and I just walked back but I remember being okay with it which is weird because you know I'm quite competitive I, I stick to my training and running was a big part of my life but I just remember being like oh well I'll just listen to your body and um,
1: yeah it shows like quite a big change in your mindset right to actually kind of accept the the situation rather than want it to be something else
2: yeah and I think that's I spoke to someone recently about that about acceptance and I think that it is very hard to do but once you accept your current situation you you are able to be okay with what what happens so that going out for a six mile run and only being able to do a mile and then coming back I was, you know, it didn't really upset me. It was just like, well, this is what it is. Like, I am going through a bigger situation. Like, my perspective had changed because I'm like, it's not just about running fast times anymore. It's also about saving my own life <laughs> through my treatment. So going out for a walk, at least I've done something. So mm. I think acceptance is, is really important to be able to move forward. And I know people talk a lot about adjusting to the new normal. And I, I think I was, you know, I never really used that word because... I I think that life for me, life is different pretty much every day, week, month, year. So okay. for me, and I speak to my friend who's a psychologist, and she like with kind of our mental health as well. We go through. It's not like you go you like this all the time, then you suddenly go down, which can yeah, happen. not
1: always going up and then
2: you are yeah. like on a you know not an up and down, up and down, yeah. and
1: yeah,
3: and
2: that's what life. So for me, I'm like what I was last week is probably different to what I am this week. So you're constantly on the flow of a new normal. And I think just accepting that is important to then be able to move forward and be OK with what you what you do, really.
1: And so you you got through your treatments. Um, you did an amazing job at the, the Great North Run. You raised what, like £30,000?
2: Yeah, um, we raised 25000 which hmm. I was incredibly proud of. Yeah.
1: amazing that's just an incredible achievement Uh, and I always think it shows the the, the incredible generosity of of like everyone donating as well which is wouldn't be possible without them right so
2: yeah and it's mind-blowing because like I think when you're around fundraising a lot you see like people raising millions and then you're like you take for granted actually 25,000 is so much money and I remember doing the Great North Run and I had an interview with Denise Lewis and I remember when I got back, when I'd finished The Great North Run, somebody told me within the space of that interview, our fundraising page had gone up like £10,000. And I was like, 10000 is an incredible amount of money. that I never raised anything near that in my whole entire life. And the fact that I knew where that money was going and that it was going to help other people like me when they are going through their treatment to be treated on a ward that's more suitable for them. And I just felt, again, I think that's why... It, did become my proudest moment because again it wasn't just about running the great north run it was also about a bigger picture on what this money could actually do to help others so i guess i was doing the great north run for myself but i really wasn't because i was doing it for a bigger you know to have a bigger impact and a bigger cause
1: Mm. so you you got through your treatments. you did the north run um i guess at some point you got given and all clear of sorts from your from your doctors and then you restarted back at Nike. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Why, why, why Nike? Like, I mean, this only reflects my own sort of perspective, which, and, and, and it's, you know, how imperfect it is. But I just would have thought like after this journey, after kind of realizing how valuable life is, you still went back to this corporate world. Take, explain to me how and why.
2: Yeah, it's really, no one's ever asked me that question, actually. So it's really, yeah, I'm glad you've actually asked me because I get a chance to explain why. <laughs> so when I went into remission, I went into remission in November. So I don't didn't get the all clear for five years because I had to have all my checks and things. So you get, I got the all clear five years later. But I was, in the first year, still a high chance of my cancer coming back. But... I think at the very start of my treatment just to take you back i remember most people asked why me and then i'd obviously met a lot of people along the way and lost friends who'd been treated um same hospital um cancer for no reason other than that you know no one's fighting harder i hate you know hate that word it's i mean yeah, fighting agreed. Was, yeah it's, it's interesting with that word just to go off topic but you know i think i needed to be in a battle with cancer with me personally but only because of my mindset. So I wouldn't say it out loud, but for me, I was like, I'm, I'm in a fight here. But I agree that word should never be used because no one's fighting any stronger than anybody else. It's just the reality of the disease and what we're having to deal with.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right that there's no it's not like some people have this kind of if you have a super strong willpower, it's somehow going to like you know stop cells dividing or make chemo more effective. I think that's nonsense. Yeah, but I think, and I and I, could, and I think all this, um, you know, the, the words syntax we use with fight and battle are deeply unhelpful. But I guess my other perspective on that is that there are certain things that we can do to at least make that time more enjoyable. And I would like to think that exercise and focusing on your exercise and diet does have an impact. And there's an increasing amount of evidence to show it does have an impact on the efficacy of treatment and your chances of a longer lifespan. Yeah. But I don't think that should ever get mixed up with this kind of battle and fights kind of imagery.
2: Absolutely. And I and I do, and I think, you know, people want to personally use those words with them. That resonates to some people. Like some people need to be fighting something and that, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be against that either. If that's something that relates to you and you're going for your treatment, that's absolutely fine. But like you mm. general words, we, we shouldn't necessarily be using that. But I do think... The mind is very powerful, though, that actually, I think there's not enough research into the power of the mind and the positivity when going through cancer treatment and how that actually can affect things. I think, you know, that has a slight relation to you know, exercise and the endorphins and how that makes you feel. But just get that's kind of going off topic anyway. <laughs> but going back. So, yeah. So I guess when I was put into remission, I started to feel how lucky I was. So I stopped. People always ask, you not? do not ask why me, and I think very early on when you can't be told why you, why you've got cancer, like they can't really explain why it happened or where it came from. So
3: yeah. you,
2: again, that's part of the acceptance that you realise. Well, I can't keep asking why me because I'm not going to get any answers. So I may as well now, you know, al- along the journey of the treatment, and then at the end, I started to feel like actually I'm very lucky to be in this situation, to be in remission. Yes, I don't know what the future holds yet, but I'm only going to focus on what I can control. So. So that's how, that's how my mindset worked. And and what happened with going back to work? So as a company, Nike were absolutely incredible to me. So in terms of my wage, in terms of the support I got, the team, the gifts I got, like I've got this massive frame that's, that's signed by everybody. But again, related to sport and inspiration. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I had a saying which said, um, so again, another positive affirmation, my saying during my treatment was I can, I will, and I'm doing this and it is very basic but I just repeated that to myself again and again and I had this massive frame and it's downstairs in our dining room but they also did me this video so my boss came into hospital and sat with me and they did me this video which is still on Vimeo I think but it basically has every major Nike sporting star so Carl Lewis all like the footballers are on there tiny tempers on there the CEO of Nike's on there Phil Knight yeah the owner of Nike's on there um, who else is on there Niles Barkley um, oh my god Mo Farah Mo Farah yeah Paula Ratcliffe um, and Lance Armstrong's on there at the end but this is before he got busted <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay.
3: yeah it's
2: the last the last one's last drug say Gemma if you need anything please just give me a call <laughs> and I'm like and then then he got busted then in the, in the January so that's a bit controversial but still you know to go to that length that everybody in that video was saying I ca- you can you will you're doing this good luck, Gemma that they were all personal messages from the world's best wow
1: wow that that does speak volumes like you know a company doesn't have to do that many companies wouldn't do that
2: Yeah. And I think that made me realize that at Nike, I wasn't just a number or an employee. I was a person that they cared about. And so, so for me, there was no question that I was going back to Nike, like no question at all. So, but what happened was I also didn't want to stay in Leicester. So Mm. what I didn't want to do was I, I I had my job at Nike to go back to anyway. So I'd have to have left my job, which never even crossed my mind. But I also wanted to get out of Leicester because I didn't want to drive past the hospital. Like I had, I had something in my head where I was like, I need cancer not to define me. I need to get away from everything. And I think this probably was the wrong thing to do because I actually went back to work quite quickly. So I went back to work in the February, but instead of going, so finished November, December, then by February I was back at work.
1: Okay. With,
2: which, A month off. <laughs> yeah, which is is very yeah pretty quick because I had I had no hair at the time so I was you know I was had a bald head like I didn't look who I was before I was still recovering from my treatment and I went back I went back on reduced hours initially but the biggest thing and probably the biggest mistake was that we moved down to London because I wanted to so my job was field-based before so I was Mm. in Leicestershire and at home um, and living, in, living in, our, in our house and, and then we, we moved down to London so I just finished treatment a couple of months ago I was down in London with my mum looking for a flat I was you know I was starting work in the office which the office is Wardour Street so central London You're going right. in, I was going from Teddington to Oxford Street, which was, you know, Teddington was, we moved to Teddington because of, we had friends there, it's amazing for running, you've got Richmond Park, Bushy Park, so I wanted, running was still important to me to get back to, Yeah. but then again, this is probably where my tunnel vision and stubbornness um, didn't end up too well for me, because I don't think it was a good decision now, looking back, going to London, um, but I think I needed to do it, I don't think I, I think, I've, oh, I needed to know if London was right for me or not, and my poor husband, St. Louis, I like, moved us down. So he didn't have a job when we moved down, And he'd been in hospital with me, been through all this, you know, everything that we've been through. And I just said, I need to go to London. And he was like, OK, we'll go.
1: So he's quite a guy. I feel he's maybe like an unsung hero of this.
2: Yeah, you need to get him on. <laughs>
1: he's great. I might. I might. Because I think, actually, in, in some ways going through the cancer treatment yourself is easy in that like you can be very tunnel visioned. It is a very straightforward, it tends to be quite straightforward and please anyone listening to this and thinks that's it's not, please come back and challenge me. But I think it's quite straightforward and sort of like what you need to do, you know, is like head down, get through the treatment, but for everyone around you, like how the hell do you support this person? And like Lewis seems to have done a great job with you. So like,
3: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And you're right, because I think I'd have been, I'd been on. I mean, I was an emotional rollercoaster going through cancer, but I, I think I'd struggle supporting somebody else because it, it's, you know, it's you don't, you don't have much control either, and you don't have that person's feeling or thinking. And and Lewis was, yeah, he was absolutely brilliant. Like, you know, he was, um, like the bed up in the hospital in my room, slept there like, you know, all the time, and was pretty much with me every single day. And and same with my mum, like yeah and he wasn't my husband at the time either he was my boyfriend who didn't know what was going to happen and and yeah it was just you know amazing so so when it came to move down to london he agreed and he ended up getting a job um at school um as a bit like behavioral working with behavioral kids um as a support worker and that side of things but i you know after <laughs> the problem was i so i worked in the office and realized that as amazing as the Nike office is as, as inspiring it is it was still an office and I realized very quickly that I don't think office environments are right for me I don't know mentally it just I think I was trying to live a life of somebody that, that how I describe it is that I felt like I was looking at somebody else's life that I was living so I was having I always call it an out body experience but when you feel like you're just going through your day and it's not you and you're a bit numb to it so so after eight months i was like i thought the commute into london and into the office would be glamorous like me reading my book on the train and yeah you know, the reality yeah, of it is met,
1: hot, underground experience yeah. and
2: you
1: know going off to be part of the you know the, the financial hub of the united kingdom and Yeah, I know other friends who kind of say they kind of love that idea of the London brush and that purpose and the busyness and the um, kind of getting sucked into that sort of purpose, I suppose, that a lot of people feel from it.
2: Yeah, and I think you have a certain idea about it and you do, like you say, you think it's glamorous. It's like going to the office, reading your book, seeing everybody, grabbing your coffee or your tea, going out for after work drinks. And the reality is not like that. Like some people might be. And and I know some people absolutely thrive on it. They love it. But for me, after about a week, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is horrific. So, like, I mean, I was already quite tired because, you know, two months, three months after treatment, you're still dealing with cancer-related fatigue years down the line. And I was still having to go back to Leicester for my hospital appointments as well. But the reality of it was a busy train, like, you know, It was cramped. It was hot. I was waiting, spending my time, wasting my time commuting, going Mm. into an office that was, you know, the same people that I worked with before. But again, I felt like I was being moulded into something that I wasn't by working in an office and having that real structure and and rules and, and regulations that I didn't think, that I don't thrive on in a working life. Like I'm quite, that's why I really enjoy working from home and I'm quite, I think my mind's quite creative, so I, I'm better when I'm out running or doing something or not in a not in a real structured environment. And yeah. I think after, and then London was also tiring, like it was just, you know, I'd get back on the train on Oxford Street and it was so busy and there was, you just, I felt like a number in London and I didn't feel like I mattered. And I think after eight, after eight months, I sat down in our flat in London, in Teddington and I just turned to Lewis was like, no, that's thing I want to discuss with you. And he's like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like, I really don't like this life. And my perspective had changed massively. Like, I was going into work with a wig on. Like, I didn't go in with bald head. I actually put a wig on.
1: And, I was going to ask.
2: Yeah, and I remember going going out running at some lunch times and taking the wig off and putting my baseball hat on. And I, it was just, you know, people say going through cancer's is hard and, like, but things like that that seem so small to other people it, it is I struggled mentally with that like being in an office where I'd stand in the kitchen with a wig on like I knew that everybody knew that was a wig I didn't feel comfortable and I just didn't I just didn't feel normal if that makes sense like my normality was going in a hospital for the last six seven months and then I was just back at work and and you you kind of like everybody just expects to go back to normal but inside your head you're dealing with so many different types and forms of emotion it's
1: scary really yeah i think there's just such um there's such a need to kind of process what's happened uh because i found one of the best things that my friends could do was just be normal yeah. um, and have that normality when i was going through treatment but then to go you know go go into an environment where you're expected to be normal to perform your job and everyone is just kind of it almost sounded like it was normal because that was more convenient for everyone else rather than they it was normal because they were trying to support you and give you normality when everything else wasn't normal when you're going through treatment
2: yeah it's really yeah when you say it like that it's really difficult to know what I wanted like I think I don't think I think I wanted people to be normal but I think I, I, in my mind, I knew that perhaps it's because I knew that I wasn't happy being in London and in that environment. It wasn't about, because the people I worked with were incredible, it wasn't about them. But I guess some of my worries that I also had is like when I met new people, like they didn't know anything about me, they didn't know my history. So I just sat there feeling like I didn't belong because I'd been through something four months ago that they had no idea about. And it just all felt... I think it's really hard to describe, but it all just felt very, very strange and, and weird. And I think maybe I didn't deal with it as well as I thought I did. And that's why perhaps I, I wanted to move out of London very quickly.
1: I think it's such a difficult thing to deal with. Um, I, I told my friends, like my classmates at Oxford, um, that I had cancer. You know, I was going through treatment because um, I was at that point. But basically, no one else, I didn't tell anyone else when I was at Oxford and that made it really difficult because there was like, there's this really big part of my life that I'm not telling you about <laughs>
3: yeah. because
1: I don't want it to, I didn't even know how I felt about it, but I certainly didn't want it to be a focus. Um, so I think it's, it is so difficult. And it was only when I kind of went public with Bristol to Beijing that I was like, this is now out in the open. And it, I guess in some ways it's a relief, but in other ways it's, um, uh, well, it's something it's certainly like a very vulnerable situation to put oneself in.
2: Yeah, and I guess, like you say, like we're all very different, but neither of us can re- or nobody can really prepare. I guess what we try, what I tried to do, is prepare for that situation, and I think I soon realised that yeah, you probably do have to go through the real ups and downs to figure out how you deal with that situation. Sometimes you don't necessarily deal with it, but you find out where you're most comfortable and where you're most happy and maybe that's where you needed to be and I think that's perhaps what happened to me that after eight months I realized this wasn't where I was most comfortable this wasn't where I was happy because I think once I moved back to Loughborough um I moved back after a year and a half actually so I did spend a year and a half in London but once I moved back I felt like a weight had just lifted off my head again and I think the numbness started to go and I think I don't describe it as post-traumatic stress Well, it can be described as that, but I'm not diagnosed myself, but, and I'm not a psychologist, but I think there was a lot of trauma that perhaps I hadn't dealt with in terms of the emotions of going through cancer treatment that London probably just added to that trauma that I didn't really deal with. Because I think when I came back home and was around really close friends, my family all the time, like Lewis, and we were, you know, we were a lot happier where we were, I think that really helped me just to deal with everything and lift that numbness. And give my mind a bit of a break. Because I think London doesn't allow that really.
1: It's very full on isn't it. It's just. Um, if you enjoy being in like the whirlwind. You know you never really. Your feet never really touch the ground. And that can be incredibly exhilarating. But I think. That has its own problems as well.
3: Yeah
2: it does. And I think from a career. Like like you said before I was really driven with my career. And I you know I'm extremely driven. With what I do now at the charity. But I also have. Back then, I didn't want to dedicate myself to a company that are amazing, but that the reality is the goal is to sell shoes. Like, I knew that I had an experience in life that I didn't want it to be fined by cancer. So, first of all, I never wanted anything to do with it. I think that was the reason I moved to London, because I didn't want anything to do with cancer.
1: Ah, uh, okay.
2: And then... Yeah in terms of like work or anything then i soon realized i'd been through something and i'd learned something very powerful about sport and exercise on my physical and mental health and realized that i could actually help other people who have been in a similar situation to me
3: and that's yes. where
2: work of move came about so i think it was a realization of you know i've got a bigger calling in life really and and i can yeah. actually help people
1: So so tell us about MOVE and and how it came about, Um, because on one side, it almost seems like you, anyone could have wanted to have just put that cancer in a box and just said, that's no longer part of my life. I don't want to even think about it. It's it's very painful. You know, it brings back a lot of memories. But you've now, your MOVE is all to do with helping people with cancer. So how what was the journey that got you, um, why did you decide to set up move or was it even a decision, did it just happen?
2: Yeah, it kind, of, it kind of, so it did kind of just happen really. I think I think I should have wrote a diary about it back there so I could remember more. <laughs> My memories never great, but I think I knew, I think after the Great North Run, I knew there was something powerful about keeping active and movement. The evidence wasn't fully there yet, but I knew that there was bits of evidence because I was reading it around that. And I knew from the way I felt, even though I was active before I had treatment, I knew how important it was from a pre-cancer perspective actually. So having a fit and healthy body going into cancer, I think massively helps and mass- is massively underestimated in terms of tolerance of treatment
3: mm-hmm. and
2: any diagnosis really. Um, but also like, yeah, that, um, and the, you know, reducing those side effects and helping you to get through it a little bit better but actually when you're going through treatment and then if you're lucky enough to get into recovery, how that also has an impact. And I think the biggest thing for me is I went on a couple of Teenage Cancer Trust Find Your Sense of Tumor conferences with some of the young people from Leicester. So as a as a patient and young person with cancer myself, and I just got talking to a lot of people there about, you know, there wasn't anything at the time around exercise. And I was just asking a few people, like, what their experience was and there was a few mm-hmm. that. Football because you use yoga and were like, actually, you know, it's really helped me without really realizing it, you know, without it being a big topic area.
3: Yeah.
2: Then, then I think I went, you know, that was after I went through the stage of, I think that was when I realized that corporate life wasn't for me and I had something else that I wanted to do and that yeah. I didn't want to put cancer in a box and and move on from it. I wanted to help people because I remember yeah. being, being at the Teenage Cancer Conference and my hair had started to grow back at that point and we did Superheroes Night and I remember um, I felt a little bit, it felt weird to go to something like that initially, but then mm. as soon as you're there, it it was amazing because again, you were with people who were out, it was out of my comfort zone, but people who understood without needing to talk about it. But I mm. remember there being a disco on the night and I remember looking at the dance floor and there was wigs flying everywhere there was all sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of haircuts and people and like oh it was just madness on that dance floor and it just made me laugh and I was like there is so much fun going on in this room like
3: yeah.
2: people could see that this is also part of the cancer journey like it isn't all about sat in a hospital bed there's more to it. and like for me everybody on the dance floor was moving was having fun and that's when I just thought, you know, there's a place for me. There's a place for Move Charity. And at the time, it didn't didn't have the name. Like it's not a very original name either. <laughs> but it said what I wanted it to do.
1: Yeah, it was the
3: business. Um,
2: so that's that's where the ideas came from. And mm-hmm. and it didn't develop into a charity until 2016. So after I left Nike, I went to work at a county sports partnership in Loughborough A Loughborough university called Leicestershire and Rutland Sport. And I actually worked on in the physical activity and health development department so I looked after exercise referral for a program for the whole of Leicestershire Mm -hmm. so what I knew what I wanted MOVE to be about so I was working on MOVE in my own time at that point but what I wanted it to be about was to provide support that I didn't receive when I was going through cancer treatment but also support that was individual to the person going through cancer, so their cancer diagnosis, their health status, their own goals and their own needs. And what I knew was everybody was very individual. So I hadn't found anybody who was exactly the same as me. They so no one who had the same diagnosis, who had the same exercise or sports goals or same life. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I knew it was so important for for what we did to be individual because we could tick a lot of boxes by doing a mass programme of just giving out loads of advice and stuff. But if I went on the internet and looked at exercise advice and it wasn't specific to me, it's not really going to help me too much.
1: Yeah. It just won't really know. It's like, does this apply to me? Am I able to do this? Yeah, sure. You could go for a, a run if you feel well, but like, what does feeling well even mean? Like,
2: yeah. And, and it, please ask your doctor first, but my consultant just told me not to go for a run. So, you yeah. know, there's, there's, I get really I have still trouble around general advice which there is a place for it but I think that's why I was so passionate about this the program that we first created and Mm -hmm. and that's how move really started was those individual programs and initially so I qualified as a cancer rehab instructor so did all my so I had a sports science degree um anyway I did all my when I was in London um working for Nike on the side I did all my um, personal training qualifications, and then went to Dr Anna Campbell's um, Can Rehab company and qualified as a cancer rehab instructor. So while when I was when I left London and we in 2016 when we started the charity, I was I formed the charity, but then I was doing all of the delivery work from a cancer rehab perspective.
1: Right, so, you were yeah. the founder and the key instigator of the purpose of the charity. You were the thing that was delivering that purpose as well.
2: Yeah, and. And that was really important to me because I felt like I needed to you know we didn't have any money like we had enough money to form the charity and we didn't have much at all and I was very lucky that at my job at Leicestershire the Sport I was able to pitch to a local company I just the charity wasn't even fully formed then and I pitched to them about the idea of what we wanted to do and they're called the Samworth Brothers and they supported me to to basically give us a grant to pay me to work for a year for the charity to see what I could do. Wow. Um, and they've supported us ever since, which is absolutely incredible because we were, I don't think we were we were a couple of weeks away from actually being registered. It was just me and my idea and my story, and they were the one company that have really stepped up and said, like, you know, this is important, what you're doing. And the value that gave to me, and, you know, we're only four years old, and for the first three years, i pretty much... Led the, like ran everything in the charity myself including the delivery of the charity um, programs and then now we've got a very small team so um, we've got four we've always had four trustees and um, but we've now got um, seven trustees and then we've got Lucy gossage as a trustee and co-founder of 5 k away we've got fundraising manager and we've got um, Helen Murray who's our cancer rehab specialist who took over my role in that um, and yeah. But then also Georgie, who's our operational manager for Five KUA. So I think for a, for a charity that's only four years old, we're such a small team. But I I believe the impact we have is is really big. And like you know, the lives that you'll see from the case studies and the stories that come out from both Five KUA and our online program, it's life changing.
1: Can and you tell us? Can you give us an example? Because it's Hearing life-changing is a cheap word to use if I'm being provocative, but tell us how it's, how it's life-changing.
2: Yeah, so I guess, I mean, we've had, from our online programme, we've had, you'll see people, so we've got some digital case studies that um, Helen's pulled together. So to think, to see the true impact, you've got to go to our social media pages on Instagram and on Twitter. So what do people
1: search to- for that? How do they find it?
2: Um, so if you search Move Charity on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook or 5K Your Way, um, you will be able to find both 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 um, handles and be able to see the impact that we're having. But Great. it was Thanks. like, so from our online program, we work with, Um, young people between the ages of 13 and 30 and we've had people that never thought that they would walk again now walking and doing exercise we've had people who were never active before treatment who have used physical activity and movement to basically change their lives and we've had people that were active who are now getting back to the sport that they they wanted to do so I think you've got to go you've got to watch the case studies to be able to see the impact that it's had but again, with our 5k away, so we had question and answer this week with Sue um, and Tony. And Sue's a 70, you, I mean, she came on the tandem, Sue did with you.
1: He did, <laughs> yeah. Sue is the most incredible 72 year old that I know, I think.
2: Exactly. And she, you know, 72, and she hadn't, she never ran before. So she's, she said herself, I've never ran or done anything like this before she was diagnosed with cancer. And she saw the banner in, the Nottingham hospital and came down for the first time to our 5k away group in Nottingham. And now she's running park runs in the 40 minutes. And, and you know, one of the celebrations was going, jumping into a lake after a park run and uh, after she broken 40 minutes, start naked with wellies on. <laughs> <So> that's 72-year-old <laughs> too. And, like, and she just says, like, just take that first step or just take that leap because you don't know how it's or what's going to happen. Um
1: and what, because um, I had this really, this conversation that really stayed me when I, when I was in Cambridge um, on the first leg of, of Bristol to Beijing, and we were talking um, with some people from the Teenage Cancer Trust about how difficult it was to get people, um, you know, teenagers, but I think all adults, um, all people, exercising, going through cancer treatment, or particularly when they haven't been exercising before. Like... And and maybe there are going to be some people listening to this who don't feel confident about exercising or who haven't had like a background in being particularly physically active. Like, what would you say to them? Like what have you been able to identify what kind of really helps people if people do want to start being a bit more active, what helps take that those first steps?
2: So I think, I think that's very true. Like I think it was hard for me who was already active, to get active during treatment or in recovery. And I think it's it's important to recognize that when we say about being active during treatment and in recovery, we know that that's not easy. But also we know that like, for example, I had two weeks, lots of periods of times of two weeks during my treatment where I couldn't get out of bed. And that's the reality that like, we have to remember the reality. So we're not yeah. saying that it's right for all parts of your life or your journey. I think what the main thing is is to think about doing something when you can, so when you feel okay and well enough to do it. And I think there's a whole emphasis to start with on just moving. Um, so, so movement is really important. And we try and what we're trying to get people to focus on is there's a shift in mindset that needs to happen first, which is why when we do our online programs, and Helen does all the work on this now, a lot of it is around the mindset. So a lot of people will be focusing on what they can't do and saying, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this. So there's a lot around affirmations and and the internal dialogue that you have with yourself. And that probably is the starting point, actually, um, because that is what stops you from doing things um, in the first place, potentially. Mm. So, so that, that's part of it. The second thing is, I think it's finding out that everybody's individual and what's right for somebody else isn't right for you. So I talk, you know, my go-to and my therapy is running, but that doesn't mean that's right for anybody else. And it's it's the same with our, you know, our 5k away program. That isn't going to be right for everybody. Um, yeah. And that's about walking, you know, you can walk, jog, run, um, or you can come for a cup of tea if you want to. Hopefully there's something in there. But again, that might not be right for somebody who's never been active or somebody who loves football, for example. Um, so so one of the things is finding out something you enjoy that involves some sort of movement. And again, that's not that easy, but a trial and error, error period of doing that, you will be able to find somebody, um, something that you will be able to do. And I think, thirdly, it's like, don't think that you just have to do this on your own. And I think that's why the impact of the work we have On our uh, online cancer rehab support program, but also five k away, is when you, when you're able to do something with other people, or sometimes for other people, you end up making changes to your life that you never thought possible. So sometimes it, it may be helping somebody else achieve things actually helps you to go on and move more, do what you want to do.
1: Right. Yes.
2: Yeah. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. No. It it does. Uh, I think there's um such a so so much power in in doing something with someone else you know and i'm a big believer in kind of being selfish and that sort of helping you can if you help yourself you're going to be better able to help other people and it's being selfish in that sense and um identifying these opportunities when you know by helping someone else you're helping yourself and then it's kind of like i'm not sure i believe in true altruism Um, And I'm very happy to be challenged on that in the comment section or maybe, you know, but, you know, I don't even, I don't see as a negative thing either that like if we work in self-interest, that can also have like a very positive impact on the other people around us.
2: Oh, massively. Yeah. And I think, so when you were saying about, you know, there's also a point of when you're saying about how do people become active if it's not their normal, they haven't had positive experiences with exercise and, on from the points that I've just made, there is a huge element of health professionals playing a big role in this. And this is something mm-hmm. that myself, Lucy, and I know Dr. Anna Campbell, for example, and a lot of organisations are starting to work towards. Is that mm. like, So for example, the consultant who told me you never run for a year post-chemotherapy, like, that like is really damaging potentially, because if I stuck to that, then I could have potentially been in the worse place health-wise than I was. So yeah. it's not to blame the consultants because the education isn't or wasn't there, but it's also you will find that if, if a health professional, for example, has a negative relationship with exercise themselves or isn't active, they are very yeah. unlikely to talk about it in a positive way, which then yeah. will affect your decisions and 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 won't inspire you to, to move a little bit more or, or yeah. won't even have a conversation about it. And, um, yeah. and I think that's something that needs to be improved and needs to be recognized first because yeah. like now with COVID-19 it's like everyone's got this exercise token <laughs> that they can yeah. use once per day and because the government, the whole government has said exercise is important, so you've got to stay in your house all day but exercise yeah. is important. How many more people do you see on the street? Yeah. Like,
1: it's amazing actually, yeah.
2: yeah. So So the importance of exercises being shown, so if that's shown consistently across cancer care pathways, that is what, that is the magic, it's not going to change everybody again, people will make decisions to not do it, but that is a big influence on then people thinking that it's it's a positive thing to do while they're going through treatment.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm conscious that we've had an amazing conversation Already, but we probably need to bring wrap it up. I have one question I really want to ask, um, which is: you said you had to deal with the uncertainty for five years of not, you know, going through the scans and not knowing if you were going to have to go back into treatment and whether you were going to, like, you know, in all likelihood, say long-term remission. This is something I'm facing. Um, Yeah. How how did you deal with that uncertainty?
2: If I'm absolutely honest, by running, it was the only way I knew how, and it it saved. If I'm, I mean, having an amazing family and friends helps, but running, yeah. I think, I think saves saves me, and still does. And I yeah. and and like it just it just mentally makes me feel okay with life. And it for me with running, I'm still competitive, so I still have goals within my running. And I think without that, I wouldn't be the same person. And, you know, it helps my mindset. It helps me mentally. And, you know, I don't, I didn't really suffer much anxiety from it. And I think that's because of of running, really.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I kind of, yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's not a comp for me. It's the first thing that I think of. So I could, you know, there probably are other factors, but I always come back to to the fact that running is just such an amazing thing for me to do for myself that gives me goals and dre- it gives me dreams and inspires me and I think yeah. that's still important to have as well to, to deal with that period of time.
1: Yeah, and I guess what other people can take away from this is maybe finding something that does give each individual dreams and that's probably not going to be running for most most people but there probably will be something that gives you some that makes you excited and gives you a bit of peace of mind as well i suppose
2: absolutely and like you say like we can only share well we can uh, i can only share what work what has worked for me and what's my experience and that isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea but like you say it doesn't have to be sport related either but it's just and i think i think there's a i was thinking about this before we started to talk and i think there is something said for also it's great to have aspirations because I think that I you know I have these dreams but then it makes me focus on the process but there's also something to be said about look we don't always have to have these huge challenges and huge dreams but actually like we're learning now to be able to live in the moment and appreciate the little things in life so I think that's one thing I learned from cancer like I remember when I first finished my treatment, I was going to do all these incredible things. Like I was going to do every space camp. I was going to do, go on holiday to Florida. I was going to try and do all these challenges. Right. Because you do really, you feel like you don't, you know, life's just, you know, it was taken away from you. It could be taken away from you. I need to do all of this stuff. But sometimes that can become really overwhelming. And sometimes the key to happiness is being okay with where you are right now. And actually being able to sit back and just live in that particular moment in time and not have to have your mind racing about 100 different things that you need to achieve or the bucket list that you need to tick off. Like, that's amazing. But actually having the ability to sit in the moment can be really powerful. And to know that, you know, we don't have to do all these incredible things. That doesn't define us. Defining us is just sometimes about taking a step back and being okay with who we are and where we are.
3: So... (laughs)
1: That, that seems like a great place to to end right there um yeah being happy with who we are where we are acceptance um i think that's that's really powerful
3: yeah
1: um gemma thank you so much for for sharing your time today um i've really enjoyed our conversation i feel like i've learned quite a lot i've learned a lot a different perspective to my own which i think is always exciting um and i'm really excited to see where move goes in in the next in the next year in the next five years um and i'm going to be linking some information about it um below with the podcast um so yeah thank you so much
3: can i
2: also just say before we go as well um a big thank you to you as well luke for supporting us through your challenges and your journey, so supporting us as a charity. Because as a, as a girl who founded a small charity and now runs a small charity, I can't tell you how amazing that is to be, you know, to be following you and watching your journey and be part of that as well. And you've, you know, you've done incredible things with what you've done, and people can see it from your social media. But it's really helped us, like the fundraising that you've done, the awareness, that you've done, and This is a charity working with you. We've been able to bring Georgie on board who's then taking 5k away to another level to support even more people so the knock-on effect of what you're doing is huge so I just want to say from me a big big thank you for continuing to support us but also continue to inspire us through everything you do so thank you.
1: Well (laughs) thank you Gemma Um, that's really kind well thank you so much Gemma and I want to say kind of enjoy, enjoy your run, but you've already been on a run today, but maybe you've got another one coming up. I don't know. Um, <laughs> two run day. but I'm
2: going to enjoy my cup of tea after this that I'll go
1: and get. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I've, I've got a bit of coffee to get to plough through. So Gemma, thank you so much. Thank you
2: for having me, Luke.
1: All right. <laughs>